following is a teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how you can join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org. Well, good morning, everybody. So glad that you have joined us this morning. And for those of you that are with us online, if you have a Bible or you have it on your device, go with me to the book of Haggai, the Old Testament minor prophet book of Haggai. Now, I got to tell you, as you're looking that up, I have a PhD in Bible and theology, and I have to use the table of contents to find Haggai. So there's no shame in that. But we're going to be in the Old Testament ancient book of Haggai this morning. Uh, A number of years ago now, um, we had a gathering here with our pastors and, and elders and I was so excited about this gathering because we were, had invited in one of my favorite authors writing in the area of spiritual formation, a, a, an author named Ruth Haley Barton. Um, she had a couple of books that really impacted me, her book, Sacred Rhythms, Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership. And so I was so excited to get the chance to spend a weekend with and learning from Ruth Haley Barton. Well, we, we gathered together for that weekend and we spent time in prayer and in worship and learning uh, her teaching. It was powerful. And yet... Honestly, I don't remember a whole lot about that weekend except for one little phrase that I suspect I will carry with me for the rest of my days. Because when she said it, as simple as it was, it was like an arrow that pierced through my armor because it so spoke to the reality of my life. See, at that time, I was a full-time professor at Dallas Seminary. Uh, I was essentially full-time as a pastor here, preaching about 15 times a year. I was leading our church planting uh, residency program. I was a member of our executive leadership team, and I was so incredibly busy. And she used this little phrase, sane rhythms of work and rest. And it was just like an arrow that pierced my armor because I knew at that point in my life, I was living insane rhythms of work and rest. I was so busy. In his book, The Power of Human, Adam Waits tells the story of a newcomer to this country who was attempting to learn the English language and understandably got mistaken about the meaning of the word B-U-S-Y and came to believe that that word meant the equivalent of good or fine precisely because how often he asked people, how are you doing? And the response was busy. And I think that little story illustrates a whole lot more about our contemporary North American cultural environment than it does one man's capacity for language acquisition. It speaks powerfully to the reality that so many of us live our lives busy. It's becoming more and more the the prominent answer, the the first answer that many of us reach for when it comes to answering that question, how are you? We just say, I'm busy. In fact, I was beginning to work on this sermon this week, and I got in the mail my copy of Harvard Business Review, and and the cover story was um, the, the busyness trap that we so easily fall into, the busyness trap. I also came across a a little meme that introduced me to a new word that I wonder if anybody else in the room can relate. The word is stress-laxing. Anybody experience stress-laxing? Here it is. Being stressed that relaxing makes you more stressed because you're not working on what's making you stressed, right? Anybody experience a little stress-laxing, right? I've been there. I live there sometimes. 
that we oftentimes find ourselves so busy. And yet in so many ways, busyness is the enemy of the deeper life, the enemy of spiritual life, of life with God for the world. We are in this sermon series going beneath the surface. We're we're talking about the reality that so oftentimes we find ourselves trying to live a life in such a way that kind of projects an image that we've got our stuff together, right? Physically, spiritually, emotionally, and relationally. We don't like to admit when our lives are messy, when our relationships are struggling, when our circumstances are out of our control. And sometimes, even within the life of the church, we feel a pressure to pretend that everything is great, like it's somehow more spiritual to pretend to be something we're not or somewhere we're not. But beneath the surface, we often suffer from a common set of spiritual maladies that plague our lives in a world like ours, navigating circumstances like ours, in relationships like ours. And so we can oftentimes find ourselves prone to live, like we talked about last week, what John Gardner calls accomplished fugitives from ourselves. And then we encounter Lent. And Lent is an ancient Christian tradition of setting aside a season for a deep sense of reflection, repentance, and renewal. A season to do some soul searching, some some spiritual introspection, and and to, to turn our lives away from those things in our lives, those patterns in our relationships and our thinking and our acting that uh, slow us down, that trip us up, that, that choke the life out of our soul, that are ultimately not honoring to God or helpful for us. A time of reflection and repentance, asking God to renew us, to bring new life, new vitality to us. And this year, as we're pursuing deeper emotional and spiritual health, we're looking at the ways that we often answer that simple question, how are you? Last week, we looked at the answer, the most common answer, fine. We talked about the ways in which sometimes that masks over the reality of our complex emotional lives. This week, we're looking at the answer that many of us reach for first that just says, I'm busy. I'm busy. That many of us today suffer from what social scientists refer to as time poverty. And busyness robs us of a whole lot that I suspect that if we took the time and went around the room and just made a list of all the things that our busyness takes from us, we could come up with a really long list. But I wanna suggest four things that I think busyness really robs of us in our lives. Calm, Clarity, connectedness, and compassion. Or when our lives become busy, when we're running too hard, too fast, for too long, it robs us of the ability really to have peace in our hearts, that, that sense of inner calm in our lives. When our lives are so agitated by busyness, it robs us of a sense of calm, a sense of peace in our lives. It robs us of clarity. That the big questions that we face about who am I and what is my life about, what's my purpose, and and understanding those deep things of God and those deep things of myself, that we just don't take the time to pursue clarity, to really pursue depth in our lives when we're running ragged, when we're busy. It robs us of clarity. When we're running too hard, too fast for too long, it robs us of connection. 
that our relationships become increasingly thin, not only with the important people in our lives, but also robs us of that deep sense of connection with God. And finally, compassion. That when we're running too hard, too fast, for too long, it's easy for us just to miss people around us in need and to really feel a sense of compassion for what they're experiencing. Busyness robs us of calm and, and, and clarity and connection and compassion. In fact, I would go so far as to say that if you think about the, the biggest, most persistent struggles in your life, in your relationships, and in whatever it is that you're going through, that oftentimes they are either caused by or compounded by busyness. Right? The, the struggles, the challenges in, in your relationships, perhaps in your marriage or your, or your parenting, the, the struggles that, that you face in, with your physical lives, the struggles that you face in your spiritual life, often caused by or compounded by busyness. So you may say, well, Barry, what does the ancient book of Haggai have to say to us today about our busyness? Well, I'm glad you asked. We're going to look at this ancient story and, and actually, I think, find something remarkably timely for our lives today from this ancient story. Now, before we dive into the text, just a little bit of context for what's going on here. Haggai is a prophet of God, a, a messenger from God who has a message for God's people, a word of challenge, a word of conviction. And oftentimes when God would send a messenger to be a prophet, um, the people of God ignored them, didn't listen to them. But here we actually have a prophet that, that seems as though his word actually took in the lives of God's people. But he's writing at the year 520 BC, before the time of Jesus, to the people of God there in Judea, in Jerusalem. Now, you need to know that what had happened, the context historically for this is in 586, the people of, of Judah, the, the Hebrew people from the city of Jerusalem were taken away into exile that God had sent prophet after prophet warning them of their twin sins of idolatry and injustice. And because of God's people's persistence, uh, ignoring of the message of the prophets, their persistent pursuit of these twin sins, idolatry and injustice, that people are taken away into exile. And after decades, the people are then allowed to return. So in 538 BC, the people returned to the city of Jerusalem. And this is like a new birth for them, right? This is like a moment of revival. And they come back to Jerusalem, and, and the first thing that they get after is they recognize they need to rebuild the temple, that they need that place where they can gather together to worship God, to, to be with him. And God has delivered them, returned them to the land. And so they get after it, rebuilding the temple, and, and they pursue that construction project for a couple of years. And then they set it aside. Then, as we'll see, life gets busy. And they begin to pursue other priorities. And by the time Haggai comes along in 520 BC, this construction project of the temple has been on hold for 16 years. And the Lord speaks to his people and offers them a word of challenge that I believe is remarkably timely for us. Let's look at the text together. Haggai chapter one, beginning in verse one. In the second year of King Darius, on the, day, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Serubabal, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and Joshua, son of uh, Josedek, 
If you're looking for some good biblical names to name babies, here's some, right? Shealtiel or um, Zerubbabel. How about those? Um, This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains in ruin? This construction project of the temple, the place where Israel was to gather together to worship God, to to be with him, to commune with him, this construction project had been dormant for 16 years. But he says, you guys are living in paneled homes while my house remains in ruins. You guys have been shopping at Pottery Barn and you've decked out the whole place. Your houses look great and my house is in ruins. This is not okay. Now, what you need to recognize here is that yes, while God is concerned about the building, it's not ultimately about the building. It's that their neglect of the building reflects a deeper neglect of him. It it reflects the fact that they have become preoccupied with themselves and they've neglected him. That that their activity, uh, uh, the failure to build this building is a reflection of the, the position of their heart. And so God is concerned about, but, but not ultimately concerned about the building. He's ultimately concerned about their hearts. And so watch what he says to them next. Verse five. Now, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but it harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you're not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord God Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty? Because my house, which remains in ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. Now, when I look at this little passage, verses five through nine, the way that I would summarize it, if if we were to sort of put it into a formula, would be this. Cultural pressure plus personal ambition plus soul neglect equals busy futility. Let me walk you through that again, and then we'll sort of unpack it. I think you can summarize this passage by saying cultural pressure plus personal ambition plus soul neglect equals busy futility. Did you see the futility described in this passage? Right? You eat, but but you never have enough. You drink but you never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you're not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Your your life is just characterized by busy futility. Why? I think there's three things underneath their story that also are reflective of our story. First, cultural pressure. You see, when, when the people of Israel returned to the land in 538, they began building the temple. They made that a priority, but... Their neighbors, the Samaritans, didn't want to see the temple rebuilt because they didn't want to see these Hebrew people, the people of God, restored to cultural power, 
Right? They didn't want to see these Hebrew people flourishing in that geographic region. They wanted to maintain a sense of geographical dominance. Right? They were in charge while the Hebrew people were taken away into exile. And so the Samaritans sort of created a, a, a campaign to see this construction project put on hold. And the campaign was successful. This cultural pressure that kept them away from what they really ought to be about. And it seems to me when examining our own lives, considering our own experience with busyness, we oftentimes find ourselves busy because we get swept up in this kind of cultural pressure around us. Tim Kreider wrote an article for the New York Times about busyness, and here's what he said. The present hysteria, right, with regard to being busy, the present hysteria is not a necessary or inevitable condition of life. It's something that we've chosen, if only by our acquiescence to it. It's not as if any of us wants to live like this any more than any one person wants to be part of a traffic jam or a stadium trampling or the hierarchy of cruelty in high school. It's something that we collectively force one another into. We experience a cultural pressure to get swept up in busy life, in time poverty. And I realize in a church like ours with the increasing cultural and ethnic diversity that the different ones among us experience perhaps this differently, right? There are some cultures that, that don't as easily as naturally get swept up into this busy way of life. And yet in this cultural environment, the pressure is very real for all of us to get swept up in a culture of busyness. Cultural pressure. Second, personal ambition. Do you see in the passage the repeated, words, the repeated use of the word you? Right? You eat, you drink, you put on clothes, you earn wages, you expected much. But see, it turned out to be little. They're driven by this sense of personal ambition. They become busy, as it says there in the end of verse nine, busy with your own house, busy with your own stuff, fixated on yourselves. And I think we can find ourselves prone to the very same thing with regard to getting swept up into a life of busyness. Once again, Tim Kreider's insight, I think here is pretty helpful. He says, busyness serves as a kind of existential reassurance, a hedge against emptiness. Obviously, your life can't possibly be silly or, or trivial or meaningless if you're so busy, completely booked and in demand every hour of the day. In that same article, he says, oftentimes when we answer that question, how are you with busy? He says, this is actually a boast disguised as a compliment. <laughs> A boast described as a compliment. It's as though to say, how are you? I'm really important because I'm so busy. And I think we get swept up into that busyness because we want to feel as though our lives have value. We want to feel as though our lives have meaning, our lives have worth. And so we get sucked into the cultural pressure to be busy because we want a sense of personal identity and, and value and worth that we often find in our doing, in our accomplishment, in our 
busyness. Cultural pressure plus personal ambition plus soul neglect. You see, this building project, the temple of God had been put on hold for them to pursue their own self-interest. And in doing so, they actually undermined their own self-interest because in doing so, they neglected to attend to God and therefore to their own souls. The, 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 the state of their soul was diminished, was depleted because they had um, missed that sense of connectedness with God himself. It's as though here, as God is speaking to them, he's saying, I cannot bless your busyness if it means you've excluded me from it. I can't bless your busyness if you've excluded me from it. If you've neglected me, if you've neglected our relationship, if you've neglected your own soul. Some of you have perhaps heard me tell the story of the first time I really encountered this whole idea of soul neglect. I'd love to be able to tell you that, that after I heard Ruth Haley Barton talk about sane rhythms of work and rest, that I just, I, 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 I righted the ship, right? I just, I solved all that problem, right? I fixed the issue. And my life was changed after hearing just that little phrase, but alas, it was not to be. The phrase spoke to me because it named my reality. I was living un, insane rhythms of work and rest, and yet that continued. I, I hate to say it, but it sort of got worse before it got better. And I went for a couple of years where I was dancing dangerously close to the edge of burnout. And then it came time for me to take a, a, a week away with my doctoral students on a um, spiritual retreat. And uh, I was leading that retreat along with a colleague of mine. And, and we went and we started the retreat. And the very beginning of the retreat, the first thing we did, we gathered our students together. We were sitting around in a circle and we just sat in silence. And I found myself just fidgeting. I found myself really uncomfortable in that silence. And the, the little phrase that sort of um, came to the surface in my heart was, I'm not ready for this. And it wasn't that I wasn't ready for the retreat. Right? I had my content down. I wasn't ready for the silence. I wasn't ready for what I might find down under there, under the surface. I wasn't ready to face myself or to face God or to face myself before God because I'd been running too hard, too fast for too long. And the next day, then, we were in a session, and my colleague um, was talking about this idea of soul neglect. And she read down through a list of symptoms that come from an author named Mindy Caliguire, where she writes about symptoms of soul neglect. And I had one of those moments that's kind of like when you log on to WebMD, and you start reading the symptoms, right? And you're like, check, check, check. And you, you walk away feeling like you're, you've got some you know, terrible illness um, because you've got all the symptoms that are listed there. Well, this was like that experience for me where she starts reading down through this list of symptoms. And as she did, I just went, check, check, check. I wonder if any of these may speak to your experience the way they did to mine. Symptoms of soul neglect, self-absorption, check, 
shame, check. Apathy, check. Toxic anger, physical fatigue, isolation, check, check, check. Stronger temptation to sin, drivenness, feelings of desperation, panic, insecurity, callousness, a judgmental attitude, cynicism, a lack of desire for God. Check, check, check. I was batting a thousand because I was suffering from soul neglect, the failure to really face myself, the failure to really face God, the failure to really face myself before God. And I think so oftentimes our lives get so busy that we can find ourselves suffering from soul neglect. In this ancient story and in our lives today, cultural pressure plus personal ambition plus soul neglect equals busy futility. So what do we do with this? Well, thankfully, the word of the Lord to them is also the word of the Lord to us. And did you see it there? The, the admonition, the imperative at the heart of this passage, twice the Lord speaks to his people and says, give careful thought to your ways. This is an opportunity, an invitation from the Lord. This is, this is not a, an angry scolding. It is an invitation to reflection. Give careful thought to your ways. The Lord is saying to them, consider your way of life and the disposition of your heart because your way of life reflects the disposition of your heart. And that word is a word to us today. Give careful thought to your ways. Consider your way of life and the way in which your way of life reflects the disposition of your heart. Now this takes us then to the words of Jesus. Jesus in response to those of us who find ourselves sometimes prone to a life of busy futility. The words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 11 are an invitation to us. Where Jesus says in Matthew 11, 28, 29, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble of heart. And in case you missed it the first time, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And it seems to me there's a couple of ways that we can learn from someone. We can learn from their words and from their way of life. And next week, we're gonna do a deeper dive into the words and way of life of Jesus as it relates to this. But, but I wanna just leave you with a few thoughts this morning, this invitation from Jesus, this invitation to embrace his way of life and find rest in him. And that is to say first that Jesus invites us to choose calm over chaos. And Jesus invites us to choose clarity over confusion. Jesus invites us to choose connection over isolation and to choose compassion over self-interest, right? Busyness robs us of calm, but Jesus offers us calm. 
And it's not to say that we won't face chaos because I assure you we will. But Jesus offers us calm in the midst of chaos with him. Busyness robs us of clarity about the deep things of life, the deep things of God. But Jesus says, even when you face times of confusion, I will be with you and bring you clarity as you trust me and walk with me. Busyness robs us of connection, both with the important people in our lives and with God himself. But Jesus invites us to connection over isolation. Busyness robs us of our compassion for other people that we often fail to see others when we're running too hard, too fast, for too long. But Jesus invites us to follow him into a life of compassion over self-interest. Friends, it was true of them and it's true of us. Cultural pressure plus personal ambition plus soul neglect equals busy futility. And God says, I can't bless your busyness if it means that you've excluded me from it. He says, give careful attention to your ways. Consider your way of life and the disposition of your heart. And come to me and I will give you rest. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, there is much more for us busy people to learn from the words and ways of Jesus. But this morning, I pray that all of us would just hear your invitation to come. To come to you to, to uh, choose you over our preoccupation with ourselves, over the cultural pressure that swirls around us, to choose to nourish our souls in relationship to you rather than neglect our souls by neglecting you. And I pray that today, each of us right where we are in the circumstances in which we find ourselves would just hear that as a personalized invitation. Come to me, I will give you rest. And Father, now before we come to these elements of communion, we pause and take a moment collectively in silence to face ourselves, face you to face ourselves before you and to see if there's anything this morning that we need to bring to you before we come and partake of communion. So we pause in silence now. Father, we thank you this morning for the good news of the gospel that enables us to know that we can truly face ourselves and you and ourselves before you because when, when we do, we find mercy and grace. We find a love that will not let us go. We find forgiveness, healing, transformation, and hope. Thank you for this good news. This good news that we remember now as we partake of these elements. We thank you for Jesus and we pray all of this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this teaching from Irving Bible Church. 
For more information on how to join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org.